You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's been over 10 years since Apple released its very first iPhone. And remember, you know, yeah, you know, June 29th is when um, customers were able to get their hands on, on the units, but it doesn't mean that... Best day of my life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. One of the best days of my life was, as well. I was 13 years old at the time, right around the time of my bar mitzvah. I waited in line with my dad at an Apple store in Los Angeles, and my mom and brother joined us later that day. It was actually my parents' wedding anniversary, and they've never let me forget that. I was considerably older than 13. I was in my in my mid-30s working for the New York Times covering Apple. And we actually fanned out and were talking to people waiting in line. And I remember being somewhat dubious about this enthusiastic display about what at the time seemed like just another device. You have no idea, man. I mean, okay, this is nothing compared to what you did, but I was no. in line for 15 hours. Were you really? 15 hours. And you want to hear the best part? I was 41st in line. Nice. 41st in line, but I was there 15 hours. There were people is... sleeping outside of my local AT&T store, yeah. local Apple store, for days. The line starts over there, but it snakes all the way behind me around this Manhattan block. Some of these people... Yesterday when we were here, there were about 19 people waiting in line for this phone. Today, as you can see, hundreds more. People cheered and yelled as they walked out of the store with their new phones for the first time. It was a great, if slightly corny, moment in technology history. But I've always wondered what this moment was like for the people on the inside. I ended up, I had a, a personal trip to Chicago, so I decided to, uh, to watch the, uh, the unveiling uh, of, of the first customers from the Chicago store. And to this day, I mean, right now, just talking about it, my skin, you know, it's, it's getting goosebumps. I, I remember literally tears just coming down coming down my eyes, right? Everything that we sacrifice all of a sudden seemed worth it. You know, when you started to look at the faces of the customers that were you know, ripping through the box and, and getting the hands on, on, on the unit for the first time. Now 10 years and billions of dollars in revenue later, Apple is revving up for perhaps its most important new phone since that very first release. I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Mark Gurman. And this week on Decrypted, we'll bring you the untold story of the original iPhone's development. We'll take you inside the room when Steve Jobs was making important decisions about the iPhone's key features. We'll also talk about how Apple recruited its engineers from all over the world. 
will even reveal a crisis that almost killed the entire project. And as these original team members relive those final moments before the iPhone was announced back in 2007, we'll give you a peek into what goes on inside Apple when the company is gearing up to launch a new key product. As we approach the unveiling of the next iPhone, there's teams of people at Apple going through all of this right now. This year's model, which is going to be a major overhaul, has been much discussed. There's clearly some excitement in the air. Stay with us. So let's start at the very beginning. The year is 2005. Steve Jobs is at the top of his game. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So we've got a lot of great stuff for you today. A lot of firsts, too. Apple is nearing a transition from PowerPC to Intel chips for its Macs. That was a huge step forward. Apple's on track to announce the iPod Nano, which turned out to be a smash hit. Internally, Apple was already thinking about how to cannibalize the iPod, which already sold tens of millions of units. Six years after coming back from the brink of disaster, Apple was growing into a technology powerhouse, in part due to Steve Jobs. Then, Steve dreamed up a new project. Not only were we, um, you know, asked to, you know, develop a product that the company had never done before uh, and, and literally pick up skill sets that didn't necessarily exist within the company, uh, but we had to do it in a very aggressive schedule, uh, a very aggressive timeline. That's Jose Kong. Today, he runs Plaus. It's an HR software startup. Back in 2005, two of Apple's most celebrated executives, Steve Jobs and Tony Fidel, asked Jose to recruit the team that would go on to build the iPhone. You know, I remember heading in the first time. Uh, it was shocked because one, you know, whole side of the building uh, in which the iPod or the special projects group, uh, SPG, was, was housed, uh, all of a sudden had a wall with a batch reader. There was utmost secrecy around the project. It even had a code name, Project Purple and only the team involved knew what the product was. And that's when I knew that it was serious. That's when I knew that it was secretive. Um, I couldn't tell anyone. I remember signing a pretty thick NDA uh, that basically stated that if I leaked any news or any information about this particular project, uh, my boss and my boss's boss were liable and you know potentially could lose their jobs. My name is Andy Grignan, and you and I are in Half Moon Bay, California, which is just south of San Francisco by about 20 minutes if you drive real fast. Andy was an up-and-coming software engineer at Apple when the iPhone project started. I met Andy at a beachside brewery, which he calls his office. He works from a laptop on the bar counter, but he reserved a nice back room for us to chat Apple. Andy has first-hand knowledge of how hard it is to build a phone. His team was responsible for the phone's functions that specifically related to making calls. Andy had a background developing software, and earlier, he actually worked on the iPod while he was at another startup. But taking an iPod and turning it into a phone, that was a really big challenge. Here's Jose. I remember, you know, as the recruiter uh, assigned to this project, uh, one of the first requisitions that came through was for an antenna engineer. I had no idea. I have never recruited for, you know, anything in that particular space. Today, almost every phone is trying to look like an iPhone, but not back then. The BlackBerry ruled the land. 
business people were certain that they needed a hardware keyboard in their phones. You had phones like the Sidekick, um, uh, feature phones where keyboards slid out. Those were popular at the time. Uh, there was a lot more variety in the phone world. And the idea of a piece of glass that you typed on seemed, frankly, very strange to a lot of people. And don't forget, at $500, it was one of the most expensive phones to date. But that clearly didn't matter. Yeah, there was a lot of skepticism. It, it also only worked famously on the singular network, which became AT&T, and coverage was terrible, right? You know, you had those famous dropped calls over the first couple of years. And so I think a lot of people probably, particularly the folks up in Waterloo, Canada, at BlackBerry, they underestimated what the iPhone could become. Over the course of the two years, working on the iPhone went in cycles. You know, here's the thing I think that a lot of people don't really get about development of major projects, right? There is no one defining moment on, on a project like this. But some episodes were intense. Uh, we were looking for uh, imaging technology, right? And at the time, Nokia probably had the best team in the world. And uh, Steve uh, had become fixated on a great uh, candidate that we found. Um, who he had met, and he wanted to make an offer to him. Uh, but, you know, this being Apple, this being Steve, it had to be an aggressive offer. Offer It had to be uh, an over-the-top uh, production. And so last minute I was told, hey, you got to head to Helsinki. Uh, you have to go meet with this particular candidate so that we can make an offer. And so uh, within, you know, literally a few hours, I'm on my way to SFO, uh, no luggage. Uh, I look at my, uh, at my itinerary, and it was basically get there, have dinner, and, and turn around and come back. At what point I had the highest level of um, travel recognition with United. <laughs> so that, that should give you, you know, yeah. th there wasn't a flight that I, that I wasn't upgraded because I had so many miles oh, wow. uh, that I was using. Thanks to Jose's recruitment drive, the iPhone team was growing. But, uh, you know, I remember one time in particular, um, we were... We were doing a, um, a quote-unquote open house. Basically, Jose had gone to Libertyville, Illinois, where Motorola's offices were. They booked a hotel room to do a mass meeting of Motorola's engineers. The plan was to bring Motorola's best engineers and bring them over to Apple. I remember uh, getting a call from the legal department at Apple, basically saying, nope, you have to cancel it. There's no way that you can go. You know, you know nope, can't do it. Uh, it's too aggressive. Um, but at the same time, I got a call from, you know, the product side of the house saying, no, no, you have to do it. We need these individuals uh, fearing, you know, being fired for not doing my job. Um, I decided to hop on the plane and we went. I would fear the repercussions of letting Tony and Steve down more than the repercussions of the legal department coming right. down on me. Thanks to that open house, Apple ended up bringing over a whole bunch of people from Motorola. They went on to become key members of the original iPhone team. Now, remember, at the time, Project Purple is top secret, and Motorola's offices were in Illinois. Jose was convincing people to relocate to California and join Apple, all without telling them even what they'd be working on. As the team was closing in on the final months before the big unveiling at the Macworld conference, something happened. It quickly escalated to the level of a full-blown crisis. We had this bug where we couldn't reliably keep a phone call going. And to the point where you didn't know when it was going to stop. When was this? Uh, before we announced, 
the in like the fall of, of like two thousand six. Okay, so three months before the phone. Yeah, some some amount of time, right? Inside Apple, this was a major problem. Who's going to buy a phone that well can't make phone calls? There was a serious risk that if Andy and his team couldn't fix the issue, it could derail the entire project. At this stage, with just three months to go, the product should have ideally been locked and loaded for its splashy January unveiling. The chips verified on either side. The chip that made the phone call was fine. There's no reason it should have dropped. We had the people, you know, from Korea and in Germany and in everywhere else who wrote the code that made the chip single-stepping along with the deepest technical bench we had at Apple. We dragged in people from everywhere. But just imagine for a second, you're dragging in colleagues to fix this issue. But with all the secrecy around Project Purple, they can't know what the product actually is. And of course, Steve Jobs had to get involved. In all the years of experience I had with Steve, sometimes when you screw up, you got to take the verbal lashing. He'll scream and holler and he'll make you feel like shit. When you knew you were in trouble, not you personally, when you, the royal, like the program was in trouble, was when he moved well past screaming and yelling. What's past screaming and yelling? Pensive, rocking in his chair. It was you. You still like you don't really know what to do anymore. He knew innately when we came to him. We were like, "This is a showstopper." In the end, this problem was so difficult that it actually didn't even get solved in time. So we ended up shipping with a workaround uh, for the very first iPhone. We never figured out, by the way, uh, until it was after the, the the phones were shipped, what the actual core problem was. Luckily. Andy found a workaround, so Apple could stay on track to unveil the phone at Macworld, which was scheduled for January 9, 2007. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, so the iPhone team is entering the final stretch. Two and a half years of working in secret is about to come to an end on January 9th. The stress, the pressure, the long work hours is starting to get to everyone. Steve was expert at finding people who wanted to ship a thing above all else. And that and above all else goes to not eating, not sleeping. You know, not being with your family, you know, not being with your partner, not being like, you know, you would do anything to get this thing out. It's a conscious decision I made every day to put all of this ahead of everything else. This was a recurring theme for the people working on the iPhone. Their personal lives were basically on hold until the news of the phone became public. You know, from my perspective, it was tough. I mean, 2005 to 2007, I hardly saw anyone. 
in, in my life. You know, I didn't get to see my family uh, very much. I didn't get to see my friends very much. I ne- neglected, you know, my relationships. Uh, to this day, yes, I feel guilty about missing birthdays uh, and special occasions, uh, even weddings. But to be honest with you, you know, the iPhone was so important. We were so emotionally connected to this project that if I had to do it all over again, I would still do the same thing. The big unveiling at Macworld was scheduled for January 9th, 2007. At this point, there's only a few weeks to go. Steve and a small, trusted team start preparing the keynote. You know, you could cut the tension in the offices with, <laughs> with your fingers, with your hands. Wow. That's how thick it was. Uh, because it had to be perfect, right? I mean, this is Apple. This is Steve on stage. We can't just you know, unveil the, the, the product, you know, the, the, the customers, the media, uh, the market. Everyone expects this to be a massive theatrical, you, you know, unveiling. But for Andy and the team, the iPhone still wasn't completely finished. We were there late one night. It was, you know, Christmas-ish time, you know, coming up late December, uh, before Christmas, and before the announcement. So it's 2006, right? December 2006. We're hanging out. There's like four of us in the hallway. The way Andy tells it, another colleague walks up to the group and starts asking them questions about the status of the iPhone. People are exhausted, overworked, and the conversation suddenly gets confrontational. And that quickly escalated into effectively a yelling match between these two people uh, on who had spent less time with their kids. Like who had missed what performance, you know, Christmas thing or whatever, like who hadn't seen this, who didn't buy... Christmas presents for that, whatever it was, just but it turned into like this, like clearly pent up frustration of just all of it, right? The program, we're not ready, you know, I haven't seen my family, I haven't seen my kids, like just, ah, right? And it just all came out. And uh, finally, this, this person was screaming off down the hall and, and goes into her office, slams the door so hard that it breaks the lock. Eventually, the team used a steel bat to break down the door and get their colleague out who was stuck on the other side. That screaming match happened with maybe a month to go before the iPhone's January debut. Andy couldn't have been prepared for the crisis that still lay ahead. Having worked hard with this small number of individuals in a very confined environment uh, where you couldn't even talk to your family or you couldn't talk to other individuals, uh, within the company uh, about what you were working on, you know, realizing that the unveiling was, was near. Uh, let me tell you, for, 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 for the first phone at least, it was probably the most exciting time of, of, of my career. It was exciting, sure, but Project Purple still had to get through the keynote address at Macworld 2007 when Steve Jobs would walk out on stage and tell the world what Apple has been up to. Remember, Steve had a terrifying reputation in the industry as a perfectionist. Keynote addresses had to be dramatic and absolutely flawless. Apple prepares months ahead of its events, leaving nothing to chance. The company prepares for anything and everything that could go wrong. But that doesn't mean there haven't been close calls. We're coming up to the announcement day in, at Moscone. And at the time, all of the keynotes were staged in this one particular room. As he gets closer and closer, as people start to practice uh, with Steve for, for, for the keynote, tensions just became a, a lot higher. You know, you knew, you knew that we were getting closer uh, by the calendars. 
uh, all of a sudden certain members of our organization were just unavailable. Apple keynotes, which some people call steep notes, had become major events in the tech industry. Fans and media would even wait in line overnight just to get a seat inside the event designed to tell you when you can wait in line for the actual product. All the laptops used, all the cabling, production people were there. But it was like instead of like this huge room, it was like a tiny room and everyone just kind of sat, you know, shoulder to shoulder with laptops. But it was that exact same equipment, configuration, everything was then was packaged up, labeled and then replicated on the giant Moscone stage. The Moscone Center is one of San Francisco's giant conference halls. It's right in the center of the downtown. And on any given year, Apple would use Macworld to make a whole range of product announcements. The Macworld stage had been used to unveil some iPods, the first MacBook Pro, and iTunes. The 2007 event would also include the Apple TV and a new Airport Extreme internet router. But the iPhone was obviously the main event. And yet Andy and the iPhone team were up against one huge issue. They were preparing Steve's iPhone announcement without having the actual iPhones. We, we didn't have enough phones because they were building the phones over in China. They were being hand-carried in suitcases uh, from, from Foxconn. If, if you're working on the hardware side, um, most of the engineers and, and, and operations uh, professionals uh, are spending a lot of time at the factory in China, right? You know, if I had not seen my family in, in, you know, for a couple of years, these individuals might not have seen their homes yeah. for several months at a time. They were under unimaginable pressure to make sure the units coming out of the Chinese factories were meticulously finished. The units come in uh, from Asia, and the process was, you know, Steve and Johnny would put on, like, these white gloves, and they would take the units out of, out of the packaging and all the other stuff, and they would inspect them with jeweler's loops, and they would grade them. So that's Steve Jobs, of course, and Johnny Ive. Back in 2007, Johnny was Apple's chief industrial designer. He's actually still at Apple today in a bigger role as the company's chief design officer. So each unit got a grade. So it started off, the best unit that we could produce at the time would be a double A. And then we'd go down to an A, and then B, C, D. You know, they, and they are just in terms of mostly visual quality, like how, how is the fit and finish on it? Like, does the bezel line up with the case? Is there scuff marks? Is there whatever it is? Is everything seated properly? And... Um, and so, like, anything below, like, a B isn't really suitable to be on stage or at a show. Once Steve and Johnny signed off on the hardware, the phones were sent for programming. That meant Apple to lay all the software that would power the phone. Everybody signs off on it, and um, the, the, the team responsible for laying down the final software on the show units uh, gets, gets the build, right? And so they, start, they, they did a gang programming where they did eight units at a time that we could flash, right? And so, again, brand new units off of the floor, and they start with the, the double A's first. They plug all of the double A units in. And uh, software goes on, and as the flashing process finishes up, they all start rebooting, like just repeatedly rebooting. And then they go dead. Turns out there was a bug. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. (laughs) 
every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs got on stage at the Moscone Center and unveiled the iPhone. He would begin the event by announcing the Apple TV, the company's set-top box. Then the big moment happened. 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple, it changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't just, it didn't just change the way we all listen to music. It changed the entire music industry. For years leading up to 2007, the rumor mill speculated that Apple could be writing its entry into the smartphone world. But nobody had imagined what a departure the iPhone would be from everything else on the market. The iPhone couldn't be more different than the Rocker phone, for example, an Apple Motorola team-up that put a version of iTunes on a bulky Motorola phone. It was a huge flop. An iPod, a phone, <laughs> and an internet communicator. An iPod, <laughs> a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And here it is. And about those perfect iPhones fresh from the factory floor, the ones that crashed in Apple's offices when they were being meticulously prepped for the keynote day? What was supposed to happen with those units was they were supposed to be in these big glass bell jars that were stationed all the way around Moscone for the people who were the invited press and people who were there to take a look. And, and what was supposed to be on them was a little, a, a little video reel that was just playing a video over and over and over again. That's all. And it was supposed to rotate around and you, could, you guys could all get up there with your cameras and get a super close, tight shot showing whatever was on the screen at the time. And there's a few of, you'll see it in some of the photos around, there's a few of them where the screens are black. And it's because we want, we, we decided it would be better for them to see a finished, polished product not showing the demo reel than a flawed product. Andy couldn't bring the phones back to life. A few months after the iPhone launched, Andy decided to move on to something entirely new. It was another phone, another new operating system. He went to Palm to work with former Apple executive John Rubenstein on the Palm Pre. Jose stayed with Apple for several years after the iPhone launch, but then left the company in 2011. After Apple, he went to Nest, the startup founded by Tony Fidel. We mentioned Tony earlier in this episode. He was one of the top engineers leading the iPhone team. When Andy decided to resign, he had that final conversation with Steve Jobs. He made a comment when, when he and I parted ways uh, at the end. He made a comment. He's like, um, I should have fired you that night. Like, referring to the night that we had put the, we had put the bad software out. Oh, my God. And I, was, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. And he was livid over that. Once the iPhone was on the market, you and I know most of the story. 
it wasn't just a success. It didn't just change the phone market. It changed all of computing. It tilted the computing world away from PCs and desktops and towards these slabs of plastic and glass that we now all carry in our pockets. So far, we've been through over 10 generations of the iPhone. Apple sold over 1.2 billion phones in that time. And the phone has made hundreds of billions of dollars for Apple. And of course, many other players have entered the smartphone market. Samsung, Google, HTC, Huawei, Xiaomi. These are some of the biggest smartphone brands around. And everyone from Microsoft to Amazon has tried to win a piece of this lucrative market for themselves. You know, the smartphone has become more, more of a commodity, uh, even though there are so many great um, competitors out there uh, with, 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 with great uh, solutions themselves. Uh, to me, I'm still blown away at the fact that that team continues to put out products that gather so much you know, interest, so much attention, so much revenue. But what about the iPhone 8? I'm excited. You're excited. Well, I, Mark, as you know, I have always been... An Android. But you're still excited. I'm, of course, excited. No, it's always interesting to see what Apple does next, how they package all the leading components into into these devices that people really love. And the new iPhone's design is going to be pretty slick, right? Well, you tell me, because you're kind of the soothsayer on this. Why are they Why are they going to release three different iPhones? Isn't this Isn't that a little bit unusual for the company? Yeah, that's that might be a little bit much. But what they're doing here is they're going to upgrade the Seven Plus and the regular Seven to a higher-end version of that with a faster processor. Then they're going to have a premium model to come over that. That's going to be the third phone. That's the big one. That's the one everyone is waiting for. That's the one that has the so-called OLED screen. That's right. Why is that a big deal? Because it looks so much better, and because the screen technology is so advanced, it allows them to chop off the top and the sides. So you'll be able to get a phone that's about the size of the iPhone 7, but with a screen size bigger than the one on the iPhone 7 Plus, so you're getting more in less space. And face recognition, what is what is that? Because that's going to be on the new iPhone as well. Right. So the phone will be able to look at you. It'll know who you are. And it says, if this is Mark's phone, it's going to unlock. I'm saying Mark because I assume you're not going to get one. Can I say one more thing about the introduction of the iPhone? Because this is a, a, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but it's a measure of how underestimated it was at the time. In that January event when the iPhone was introduced, I actually was covering consumer electronics for the New York Times at the time. I was at CES in Las Vegas during the keynote. I just checked my records. It's kind of amazing to me that I was among all those companies and products that didn't end up making an impact. And here in San Francisco, where I lived, history was happening. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We also have a correction to make. In our previous episode, we said that hydrogen typically has one neutron. Mark Gurman, correct or incorrect? Well, Broadstone, if you're reading it, I'd guess that it's incorrect. Yes, good guess. The most common version of hydrogen, in fact, actually has no neutrons, while its other isotopes, deuterium and tritium, have one and two neutrons, respectively. Many of you must be listening to this on an iPhone. Are you excited about the iPhone 8? We want to know what you think. Get in touch with us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or tweet at me. I'm on Twitter at Mark Gurman. And I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. This goes a long way to get this show in front of more listeners. 
This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. I'm running a whole series of special stories around the launch of the new iPhone. Thanks to Robin Agello and Alistair Barr for the help. You can read them at Bloomberg.com technology. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you all next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.